0: Things that makes me so happy about doing this podcast is that it's starting to open my eyes even more to all the many beautiful ways that this practice of yoga can support and encourage and protect and heal us. And man, don't we all need that more than ever right now? Hiya, folks, Shara Carruthers here and folks we are on the verge of a transition. Can you feel it? I'm talking about a seasonal transition and man Does it feel funky? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about the discomfort that people are feeling at the moment. Is this you too? If so, consider that it might actually have something to do with the transition we're moving through at the moment. How does your mind and body hold change? Yeah, that's one of the first questions that we asked today's guest, Kelly Palmer. And it's an important theme of the conversation that we ended up having with her. Kelly Palmer, otherwise known as Peace-Filled Mama, is peace-filled indeed. When we talked to her, she was at the end of a long day and a really busy week, so the vibe was most definitely chilled. But underneath it all, you could feel her fire. Kelly, she's a dynamic and passionate creator and coach and community advocate and writer and yogi, and yes, she is a mother and an accessible yoga teacher who speaks to the power of yoga to open our hearts and lay a foundation for a world that's equitable for everyone. And she's currently leading the conversation on racism within Jeevana Heyman's Accessible Yoga Training School, where she's put together an online course that's focused on illuminating many ways that racism lives in our yoga spaces. From what I can tell, she's created this course as a compassionate space for sharing conversation and the tools we all need to build a more equitable society from the inside out. This conversation with Kelly was one of the most feeling conversations we've had. And I think that's in part because Kelly is a huge-hearted person who brings everything she is to the table. She knows how to speak truth to people of all ages, colors, and orientations, which is why we actually ended up with my 16-year-old daughter in the room listening to Kelly share her wisdom. And now it's your turn to hear from this beautiful, peace-filled mama. So please enjoy this conversation that Maria and I had with Kelly Palmer. All right.
1: Often recording kicks off, but I got to kick off today because I got to meet
2: okay. you. First. So, so nice.
1: but how But what I want to start with is how are you going now? How are you holding? Because we were holding a moment, I suppose, when it was all really just opening up. Mm-hmm. But now it's how are you sustaining your holding these moments?
2: Right. I think that for me, I hate to say that I have enjoyed this time, but I appreciate what the time has held for me. In terms of like, I travel a lot for work, which means that I'm away from my children more than I would want to be sometimes and away from my home, which I love. I cultivated a home for myself and my kids and I like being here. And so I, I hear people when they're like, they have like an itch to like go out and like do things. And I do in some ways, like I really miss the, the sea and the beach um, but like just to go to target, I don't care about that. I like being at home and like having an, ex- no one thinks it's weird. Now that I get my groceries delivered, everyone gets their groceries delivered, but I've been doing that for a while. Cause I hate the grocery store. So it's just, <laughs> it's been a period of more expansion into what I wanted for myself, even though it doesn't look like what I thought it would look like. Uh, my partner and I live in two very far away places and she came here in March, just for like a short visit because her job went remote and then she's still here. And it's all the way in August essentially. And we haven't ever had this much time where somebody didn't have to like go home for work or go home to get the kids or travel for a job. So it's been good and like a big learning space around just even parenting because I'm not used to having my children all the time. They go to their dad's house for half the time and they haven't been able to because of where he works and just like thinking about what's most safe for them. And so that's been good too. Like it's been good and it's been a lot. It's been good to like have them with me all the time. And it's a reminder of what a big pause that is for them to be gone for three nights out of the week. Mm. And So, you know, like I haven't, well, now I've been by myself, but I hadn't been by myself from like March until probably july and it was just like oh god there's always someone here talking to me looking at me and so you know there's been those moments too but um i feel grateful my mom took my boys for a full week camping trip in her backyard and so it was seven nights of no kids and we just like stayed up late and woke up late because you know children small children i have a six-year-old and a four-year-old they do not let you sleep in they want to eat all these things and <laughs> it was just good to have that pause. So I'm sustain all that to say I'm sustaining myself by leaning into what feels good. And, um, a lot of people who work with me know I have a very short work week. It's Tuesday to Thursday. Um, and I really enjoy that for myself because things have been chaotic in terms of like my nonprofit and making sure that we're fundraising, but also, you know, people are distressed and part of the work that I do is to help people feel less distressed. And so my inbox is really full, but taking four days off a week feels like really good to like reset, to not check my email, uh, to not answer my phone, to just like play with my kids outside. We found a slipping slide at the grocery store, um, which is like nostalgia for me raised in the eighties. Yeah, um, I love And just doing my work when I can feeling less urgent about things. You know what I mean? Like I've worked for myself for a long time. So I'm used to having to like figure out how I can come to Australia and teach and like work out a contract and travel dates and childcare and all of these things. And as much as I miss being in spaces with people where we're learning together, I don't miss, I don't really miss that other part of like, and so it's been good (laughs) in that way. You know what I mean? It's been good in that way. Yeah. And I'm just leaning into that.
1: Yeah. I respect your boundaries so much.
0: How has it been like with all of the stuff that's sort of been happening around COVID and that and and, you know, the murder of George Floyd. How has it been for you having your personal space like you've talked about, like having your kids real close and around? How has that been kind of different to um You know what you would? Well, I mean, oh, geez, all of this is different. Mm -hmm. How's that been for you? Yeah, I mean, been there, seeing all of this too.
2: It's been it's interesting because I've been working in race equity for a long time, and like community involvement, and like that's looked different in different ways. I was kind of raised to always be like volunteering or contributing or speaking up or doing whatever it is, and so I don't feel any different now. Like, personally, Mm. than when Tamir Rice was murdered or Mm. when Trayvon Martin was murdered or when his killer was acquitted. Like, I I still feel the same, like, deep sadness and sometimes hopelessness around that ever-changing. Like, there's no other experience of Blackness on this continent. And that part makes me sad, as you can hear. Um, Mm. But also, like, this time I feel... I feel hopeful that there's a shift and I also feel dumb for feeling that way
1: Mm.
2: Uh, because our generation is not the first generation to really fart fight and be so uh, connected to wanting a different experience. Mm. Like my mom was a kid it's her generation that did integration. So it's not like it's so long ago. Each generation has this particular like space to really lean in and things are magnified because you have the internet and people have phones that they can capture everything. And so we get to see so much. So I feel like the deep sadness I have, isn't actually mine. It's generational sadness. Mm. Yeah. And the same for the hope, like I know that my parents hoped that being integrated and getting good jobs and being able to live wherever they wanted to was going to change my experience. And, and my experience is different from theirs in a lot of ways. And it's the same in a lot of ways. Mm. I'm sorry.
0: No, that's <laughs> okay. okay. That's okay. I feel you. It's so yeah. right. It's so right. <clears throat> yeah.
2: Yeah so I feel sad and hopeful and then sad again (laughs) and then sad again Mm. and just allowing that to like that's part of like sitting with the discomfort that's part of the practice that we're involved in that we're a part of that (sighs) awareness that I can feel both things like Mm. I was having an amazing time watching a very silly show with my partner before I came in here with you guys. I'll probably return to that afterwards. And mm-hmm. um, and at the same time, I'm rapidly filling out grant applications to supplement uh, emergency stipend fund for other black people who are out of work and feeling mm-hmm. very like annoyed <laughs> with capitalism and, I read an article about billionaires and why they shouldn't exist. And it just made me like fervently upset all week that people have Mm. that much amount of money and then other people don't have any. And then Mm. there are people in the middle begging to redistribute it. And they're just saying no or making hoops for you to jump through And so, you know, I sit with the space of like, yesterday I didn't work at all. And I simply played outside with my children and it was wonderful. We had a lot of food come out the garden. We made some failure recipes and laugh. (laughs) And also like today feel sad because we got to know or whatever. You know what I mean? Fill in the blank. It's like a million things that can make me sad. So I'm saying all that to say, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for the expansion and the space of discomfort because it also informs my work and keeps me grounded and,
1: you know vibrates mm. me higher isn't that what people like to say <laughs> <laughs> your your activism really came it has always been there there wasn't sort of a single galvanizing moment or a kind of activation your parents were kind yeah, of
2: I, mean, I think because my parents were born in the 50s and they grew up in the 60s and 70s they were kind of in a group of people who might be involved in like protesting and all these other things, but also they enjoyed the experience of being in like really rich black communities that hadn't been torn apart by integration yet. So Mm. they grew up in a very rich sense of community that I think integration ruined for people of color in a lot of ways, especially black people. Um, but you know, like their teachers were their aunts and the people who worked in the store lived in the same neighborhood as them. And the police who patrolled their neighborhood also lived in their neighborhood. And you know what I mean? Like there were these levels of feeling very much in community that, um, inspired them to always be saying like everything you do affects another person. And, uh, I tell people a lot of times that my grandfather who died when I was 20. So I wasn't even like connected to yoga or practicing at all i don't i had never been to a yoga class he's like the first yogi that i met because there's so much that's like ancient yoga philosophy that he would say in different ways to me and one of those was like essentially loka samastas sukinu baba to like don't everything you do needs to be about everybody having equity and freedom and happiness and like if you're not a part of that, then you're a part of the problem for that. And so, you know, growing up, volunteering, and doing all of these things, not always from the best place. Like when I was in high school, <laughs> they were like, you know, the more community service you have, the more likely you could get a scholarship. And so I was <laughs> like, all the community service. But at the same time, I learned a lot and experienced a lot of things that when I think about it now that I'm talking with you all informs how I wish to show up in my own nonprofit and work and contributions to community. But yeah, my parents and grandparents, and I didn't even realize until I was like, I don't know, maybe like 23 that my grandfather had, um, he owned land, which makes a difference when you're talking about people who are just like one or two generations out of slavery. My grandfather was two generations out from the end of slavery in his family and he owned land that had been passed to him that had been passed to that person. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in their community, they might've been seen as wealthier people, but there were farmers who didn't have a lot, but he did have a horse and he had wagons. And so he would take wagons of people to vote because it was far and most people didn't, there weren't cars in that area then. And people just didn't have means, but he like would organize and take black people to vote and, I only, like, learned it. He told me, like, I he called me on the phone and was telling me something. And I told him, like, I got to go because I volunteered to go in the Walmart parking lot and, like, register people to vote. And, like, I don't want to miss it because it's, like, a Black part of town and I want to make sure Black people get registered. And then he told me. And so it's, like, all of that was, all of his choices were informing my own choices and teaching me. And I didn't even really, like, fully realize it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And now I have yeah. feelings about voting, but I still, um, you know, connect to his what I think he viewed as a responsibility to be uh, to make sure people could vote or do whatever it was.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm yeah. sorry, I'm it's, a little
1: rambly. It's the long part of the no, day. No, no, this
0: is all good. This is just a conversation, so it's all good. Wherever <laughs> it goes, that
1: was the most beautiful story. That was rambly now. It was just amazing. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
2: and, and I mean, so wait, the story he... that he told me actually wasn't like a good story even <laughs> though he what he told me was that and this is the part okay he what he told me was that he was taking a wagon full of people over to vote but by the time they were coming back it was dark and this group of white people basically blocked the road and approached his wagon with their guns. And my grandfather, who was legally blind, got off with his rifle. And my grandmother, who wasn't legally blind and liked to shoot guns, had her own weapon that she was holding. And he just said to me, like, that was the first time he ever like, not first time, but that was one of the times that stood out in his mind that, like, oh, I'll be killed for being black. Even though mm. he had been, and I think You know, like he might have shared the story with me over a couple increments, but I think that, you know, most black people who have any knowledge of their like ancestry in America could tell you, because I could tell you a million things that have happened to me because I'm black, but could tell you something that happened one generation ago that we could in some ways take for granted. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I've never felt like I couldn't travel to the poll to vote. I might not have liked who I had to choice to vote for, but I, I could go yeah. freely. You. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Are your,
0: are your parents alive still?
2: My parents are still alive. My parents are both sixty seven. They'll be yeah. wait, yeah, they're sixty
0: seven. What oh, are they well? thinking about this moment?
2: You know, it's interesting. My parents have two different outlooks and I am more radical, so we don't always align. Like I'm not sure if you guys are following the calls to defund the police here in the US. Yeah. And um, you know, I wanted to be a police officer for a portion of my life as a young like teenager, like maybe age 14 to like age 17. Like I really wanted to be a police officer and was trying to figure out a career for myself in law enforcement. And I appreciate that my family kind of let me just learn on my own that that wasn't in alignment with who I am as a being. And as Mm -hmm. an adult, I can appreciate the contrast and experience that I had around things like the police. And so I'm saying all that to say, my parents have very different viewpoints on all of those things. And their two viewpoints are different than mine about it also. Mm -hmm. and so. I actually choose not to talk about politics with my dad because it infuriates me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know. Yeah, it infuriates me sometimes to hear <laughs> them talking. And then my mom, we just lightly talk about politics. And I think because of my parents' age, I think that they don't hold out a super lot of hope that mm-hmm. things are going to shift or change, but then they are hopeful that it'll shift or change because they have grandchildren and they don't want mm. their grandchildren to have the same experience that they have, but then they think, "I am in some ways having the same experience my grandparents had." So, what will be different?
0: What would change? So, mm. yeah, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I've been, yeah. yeah, it's interesting how, from generation to generation, how, um, how things shift, but then how things so much stay the same. Because yeah, I've been having some just conversations with my parents, and they recognize aspects of this moment and there's that little bit of hope and then and then they kind of I think maybe fall back to um what their experience has been over the years right you know and so yeah. And, and yeah they look to the kids too the grandkids and whatever and I think that's what pulls the hope out of them you know right
2: right i mean when i look at my children that's usually what brings me to a place of like wanting to be hopeful but then you yeah. know i can look at them and it brings me to a place of feeling very like Super sad (laughs) because, it, you know, like often when I'm teaching, uh, uh, especially around like race equity and shifts that cultural shifts that have to be made, um, people want to see something really quickly happen. Not realizing Mm -hmm. that things don't heal that quickly and the racial trauma that exists for black and white people around racial inequity, because it's not just black people who hold a certain kind of harm behind it. It's not Mm -hmm. the same harm. It doesn't show up the same way. But white supremacy asks us to be separate from our humanity. And that harms you when you agree to it, when you agree to set your own humanity down so you can disregard someone else's humanity. It harms you. And so that racial trauma is new in all of us. There there has not yet been a generation who said, like, we're going to heal this. There hasn't Mm. yet been a generation of white and white presenting people who have said like, I'm done with whiteness. We see that whiteness harms everything. And I'm not talking about white people specifically. I'm talking about the concept of whiteness harms people and we want nothing to do with it. And so when that happens, then in several generations, we could see something, a sustainable change. But people want it to be quick. And, you know, in some ways, I feel like people have already moved on. Mm. In most of the ways, I feel like people have already moved on.
0: Yeah. Why do you think that is?
2: Mm, I think because what it would take for the world to really be equitable for everyone, Mm. Um, the elderly, for children, for women, for black people, for indigenous folks, for everyone to to have equity would mean that we would have to give up a lot of what it is we've normalized as like Mm. giving us value or um, giving us purpose like capitalism, like when you start to say to people like we'll have to get rid of capitalism, they're like, Well, wait a well, wait a minute, because I worked hard. I, I went to college, I went to graduate school, I got a good job, I bought a house, i am invested, I have a financial planner. You want me to get rid of capitalism? I mean black lives matter, but my capitalism <laughs> So it's like Yeah, we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, we're not there yet. <laughs> We're not there yet. And I mean, I say that too, as a person who lives in a house that I pay a mortgage on and you know what I mean? And I have things, I just ordered some chairs from Amazon. Like (laughs) I have things also. And so I'm not saying like everybody else has to get ready. I also would need to get ready because what we, for it to be equitable, it can't look like anything we've ever experienced or described or planned for. We could look back before we started planning and see how people were existing. And then that might give us a clue. But I don't think most people would want to go back to that, to like living communally and having to forge their own way, truly forge their own way and like make what you keep, keep what you make. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think people are prepared. I'm not prepared to have to grow all the vegetables I eat. I can grow some vegetables I eat, but... Those things I don't think people think about when we're talking about dismantling white supremacy. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Those are the parts
2: that people aren't. It's like, uh, I am fairly really grateful. My partner's a sociologist. So these conversations, what we're talking about is exactly what she and I will be talking about when we get back on the couch and start watching TV again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but something that she said to me, a couple of things that she said to me around capitalism that I was like, dang. <laughs> really like one is that we collectively as humans so the three of us and all the humans listening to this have collectively agreed along with all other humans that we should have to pay to exist on the earth Mm. and i was like wait no and she was like we pay for water we know humans need water we pay Mm. for food we know humans need food we pay for housing we know humans need shelter and we've agreed to pay for it. And then we agreed to pay for medicine to make us well from all the stress and disease and illnesses given to us because we agreed to pay for all the other things. I'm mm-hmm. like, humans, we don't want to collectively be like, no more. We're just existing. Everybody just exists. And I was like, That's you're right. right. It's like so crazy. And then the other thing that she said to me was that the only reason that our money holds value is because someone doesn't have it. I'm like you're right because you know I think about like King Musa I don't know if you guys have ever heard of King Musa he's from a region of Africa I'm too tired to recall exactly but you can look no. it up if you're listening to this King Musa went and traveled from Africa into like Italy-ish, France-ish area somewhere that area and distributed so much gold that gold became worthless
0: mm-hmm.
2: he was the richest person ever to exist Like when they tried to like recalculate his wealth, they were like, he was like a, I can't even think of the made up number my three, my four-year-old has, but it's something like Noggle a million there. He was like, he had like a million, million, millions. Mm -hmm. And he crashed the market because he was like, everybody should have some gold. And so he was just handing it out. And that's the truth of the system that we've all agreed to is that some people will have a lot, like a small amount. Most will have enough to keep them interested. And then the rest won't have any. And that's how we'll maintain the value of it. And, you know, I think about that every time I see someone asking for money. Like, let us just pass it all out. What? Who is holding it? Let us all pass it out. But it doesn't work like that. So I'll trudge along teaching my workshops and doing podcasts about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how yeah. it feels sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I'm interested in knowing because like every I'm listening to what you're saying, nodding my head, and I'm thinking, so how how does your yoga, how's your yoga serving you? How is it changing you? How is it even helping in supporting that hope, that even that little bit of hope that well, you see, feel?
2: It keeps me out of jail. That's the first thing you <laughs> want.
0: <know>. It keeps <laughs> me out of jail.
2: I am not a person who had a pattern of maintaining an ability to regulate their anger from the time Mm. I was a middle school age child till mid twenties. Mm. And then I stumbled upon this practice. And as much as I leaned into it because I was like on a weight loss kick of some mid twenties, you know, you got to be under a hundred pounds, whatever. (laughs) I I never have been as an adult, just saying. Um, But I was like in it for the physical. And then I realized like this really like, I could take control of my breath instead of just flying into a rage and breaking my own stuff or like being harmful to people around me. And not like I was out here beating people up. I mean, I Mm. will push me, but I wasn't. (laughs) Um, But it just really put me in this like supreme focus space. And so I say all that to say, I just really lean into a lot more of the subtle practices. I Mm -hmm. still practice physically. I'm really into these like, um yin and restorative classes lately just i feel tired and they really help me feel not as tired but i'm here for like breath work workshops i take meditation like so many times a week it's ridiculous um Because, you know, like someone asked me, like, well, what do you do all day Monday? And I'm like, well, I get up and I work out. Then I make a smoothie. Then I take a yoga class. Then I just read a little. Then I go to meditation at two. And then I go to this breath club. Like, I just am leaning into those spaces because they remind me of what I have control over. Um, You know, my own breath, my own mind, my own actions, my own reactions and... I'm just leaning into them in that way. And then also trying to make sure that other people, especially people of color have access and that the current pandemic and like freeze on people's ability to earn doesn't influence that doesn't hinder people from being able to practice. Um, which to me is the practice of like making this, you know, it goes back to what I told you, my grandpa said that, you know, everything you do needs to be, In alignment with making sure other people have what you have or more than what you have, and that includes this practice. I feel like there's a lot of history um, around breath and movement practices, especially from people for people from the continent of Africa who have ancestry from Africa that's lost. Um, But we see it in small ways, like the Maasai, everybody's familiar with them and like they jump up and down to get ready for war. But really what studies have shown is that they go into a meditative state that makes them brave enough to go with a spear and shield and fight another person hand to hand in combat. I'm like, if this is not an energy practice, I don't know what is. Or just like other practices that we don't really have full scope on what people lost when they were dispersed through enslavement all over the world. Um, and I feel like especially black people, especially black people in America, we've leaned into a lot of things that weren't ours to try to mm-hmm. feel better, to try to cope, um, whether it was drugs and alcohol or church. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, like whatever you believe, it's just like there were. we also had some sort of belief practices, movement practices that we were doing that is ancestral knowledge that's lost to us. In many ways, and for me at least, there are parts of the practice of yoga that is popular in the West that bring me back to that space, bring me to this place of knowing that, like, my people were stolen, enslaved for a few generations, then were free, and <laughs> we've been on this continuum of what freedom really means here, separated from their <clears throat> ancestral practices and knowledge. And in many ways, separated from observing their own body or taking control of their own breath or what they're allowed to eat and consume. Um, I remember learning as a teenager that enslaved uh, Black people could not grow their own like gardens on the property or near their own space. They could only eat what they were given by their master. And it's like, so I grow you food all day and then I can't even just in my spare time grow me a little something. I have, you're forcing me to eat garbage and how that is still the, the same, like mm. that's still the same people of color mm-hmm. don't have control over their food supply. And so this practice feels like one of the ways that we reconnect to what it means to be in our own bodies and in our own experience and in our own driver's seat, or at least an opening for people to investigate what that means
1: Tell us about your organization, Sanctuary. Sanctuary in the City. Sanctuary in the City, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, So the Sanctuary in the City is a nonprofit. We're based in Charlotte, North Carolina in the U.S. And uh, it was started by a group of Black women here. We're all yoga teachers. And we could see and we're experiencing that even though yoga is really big in our city, (laughs) It is really white-dominated. All the studios were white-owned at that time. Most of the teachers were white. It was just real white. And um, there were things happening. Uh, we had a young man who was involved in a car accident here in the city. And later it was revealed that he had, like, su- suffered brain trauma in the accident, but he wasn't unconscious. And so he got out of his car trying to get help. His cell phone was, like, recovered either in a place he wouldn't have been able to find it or out of the car or something like that so he tried to get help the person whose house he first knocked on called the police the police shot him like 20 something times in the back and he was alive when the medics arrived but they put handcuffs on him and would not allow him to be um, helped for a time period that caused him to expire and so it was like People were he upset here in the city and mm. the yoga studios were just posting about butterflies. And I don't know if I can say cuss words on here, but yeah. <laughs> How can
0: you not? You're butterflies the story.
2: and bullshit. <laughs> and, you know, you make note of the studios that said nothing. All of them. They all said nothing. And then a few years later, we had a father waiting at the bus stop for his child and the police approached his vehicle because they said they had a call for a suspicious person whatever he's sitting in the car reading with his wife next to him they shoot and kill him and they lied about what happened but we had just gotten body cams here and they were forced to share the body cam footage with you know like an advisory board or whatever and it was revealed like y'all murdered this man while he was waiting for his child to get off the bus from school and um his name is Keith Lamont Scott and protests very active protests started happening here in the city and you know people got different reviews of what happened um, but it ended up being like a very violent experience the very first night with a man losing his life like all of these things are happening at the time I owned a hair salon a storefront hair salon that was very close to where the space was of the five or six businesses in our parking lot all of them except ours and another had all their windows burst busted out they've been robbed like it was like a lot of things happened that night and yoga studios they either were silent or they were using this hashtag not my charlotte That's that's the name of the city we live in. And we're like, this very much is your city. (laughs) This is so much your city. Like you cannot be violent with a group of people, with groups of people for centuries and then not, don't even get me started on. That's why I don't say stuff like riots. Like, no. Property gets damaged all the time, especially when you've been harming people. And I'll never put people over property. So like, I scoff at that when people are like, well, they damaged property. I'm like, okay, let someone kill your brethren for thousands of years. And then see if you don't want to turn the table over. Like it's it's just bound to happen. It makes their point no less valid. Like you've been using violence against people and you're so upset over insured violence against property, but whatever. Um, And so the yoga studio is quiet, nothing to say, And when they were called to task about it, they went on the defensive, they threw the Gita up, they had examples in the Vedas, they wanted us to vibrate higher and love and us and just everything that people mostly try to avoid now, but I still Mm -hmm. see happening. And I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. In 2020? You're still doing it? But they did all of that. And so we just decided like we were not going to keep going to their spaces. And we were going to work on a way to cultivate a space for us to practice and do healing. That's very particular to black and Brown people outside of white gaze. Cause mm. even the gaze of whiteness can be harmful when we're talking about having really intimate conversations about race. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm talking with you guys about it. And I cried. I, I cried. I never cry when I'm teaching. Cause that's something that's very personal for me. And so in the same way, it's like, If we're having practices where we're talking about like healing old trauma, to me, it's very dangerous for me in my experience to be in a space like that where people aren't addressing white supremacy and how it shows up in the space because they do stuff like call ancestors into the room. And I'm like, let's be sure our ancestors want to share space. Let's Mm. be sure about that first. Mm. (laughs) And secondly, (laughs) let's be clear that you're tapping into something you don't really even want to talk about. You don't want to talk about the historical trauma that, brings us to this very place. And so we decided to cultivate a way for us to offer yoga and meditation and more than that, this community where we could lead that space and be in control of that space and lean into these ancient practices that we know are part of our lineage, but don't know, you know what I'm saying? Mm. We don't know. And so um, there's three of us now and we primarily, because of the pandemic offer, daily online things uh, we have different movement classes we have breath classes we have meditations we have panel conversations where we discuss topics that are particular to our community um, we've even had dr gail parker which if y'all haven't had dr parker mm, i'll show you yeah you definitely should um, yeah, I'm definitely sure. she did a talk for us and has an upcoming workshop um, we have a we have our first retreat which is going to be a virtual retreat with octavia Rahim. Um, And all of those offerings are free to black and indigenous people of color, but we also pay all of our teachers handsomely um, much more than all of them say they are paid normally to like teach yoga or to teach a meditation class. Um, And we sustain that mainly through grants and donations. And this year has been interesting because we set a goal for the whole 12 months to raise $75,000 And that was pre-pandemic. We had like some pop-up offerings we were going to do. We'd just been offered a community space, a studio here had offered us their studio twice a month for us to have classes in person. Um, And in June, we had already raised $65,000 through the pandemic and all that stuff. But a lot of it had to do with what happened to George Floyd and people feeling like they wanted to do something. And not all of it coming from a good place. Mm-hmm. and also we'll take your money and redistribute it to people of color so mm-hmm. give it up but um, but also like we might since the month of July I think our accountant told us we've raised 10% of what we raised last month so where we were having days where it was like you've raised $6,000 today through our website like yesterday email came and said you raised mm-hmm. $7 <laughs> we were like well thanks for the 7 I mean it's still going to go to the same thing but yeah. people's excitedness and like fervor and commitment is, you know, to me, it's waning in that way, Mm. not just in like redistributing resources, which I think is important, but also just in their engagement. People just wanted to go back. Like, I think some people were excited that here in the U.S. there's a debate about going back to school because that's something everybody's going to be like interested in. And that's all I see now It's like, well, whether or not our kids go back to school and what I've been saying when people tag me is it's still all white supremacy. They know it's mainly going to be people of color who have to send their kids back to school. So if we're saying it's dangerous and you care about it, Sarah Beth, then you need to go to bat about it, not get a pod and hire a private teacher. Cause last month you said black lives matter, but I guess this month that's not really that important. So it's just that space of wanting people to like be connected to sustained movement like sustained activity around it
1: Mm.
2: the way they would if it because essentially it comes down to people feeling it doesn't affect them even when we're talking about equity in yoga you can't even know how many times i say that like race and background gender identity um, sexuality these are access issues for for equitable healing spaces because you may go into the space and be harmed in a space where you were supposed to find peace or whatever. And people will say like, well, I'm not stopping them from taking my class. I don't know what else I could do. I have one black person on the flyer. I mean, everyone's welcome. People know that anyone could come. And it's like, right. (laughs) Um, Because it doesn't affect them. They don't have to think about it at all. I even um, was sharing with Jeevana earlier that, I had someone arguing with me that it shouldn't be mandatory that yoga studios are wheelchair accessible. She was like, because I'm not going to teach a class that someone in a wheelchair could take. And I'm like, that's all well and good till you fall or hurt yourself. And you yourself are in a wheelchair and cannot enter your own business. Yeah. Since all you think about is yourself and people who live in the same experience as you like realize that this experience could be altered at any time. And then you'll wish that you have cared about it. Like, You'll wish that you had been engaged in dismantling this thing. But I think people, you know, we're caught up in our shiny things. And the next brightest, best hashtag and the hashtag right now in the U.S. is don't send the kids back to school. And Black Lives Matter is, like, forgotten. And even once the school year starts and children start to die, as they are here in the U.S.,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um, they, I mean, we as Americans – collectively don't care about children dying. We've proved, we prove that constantly over and over and over again in our legislation. So I just, I'm not even sure why I got on that tangent, but I feel, um, I want to feel hopeful. And then I start talking to y'all and I start to feel, uh, I start, not because I'm talking to you all, but just because yeah, I'm sure about, what I, know, about what I read and what my work is and just feeling, Um, You know, there was lots of people who I saw were just quiet on social media. They weren't saying anything. They might like things, but they weren't saying anything. And then as soon as the school conversation came, here they were with all of this activism and social. And it's like, Mm -hmm. because you only care about yourself and your family and your children and people who look like you and have the same lived experience as you. And if you're really in this practice, which, you know, I'm not saying those people are, but for the people who are in this practice... Part of the practice asks us to be connected to how our experience is influencing the experience of others and being really intentional about that. And for the most part, I think where we're talking about social justice issues, people don't pay attention to it or they outright ignore it um, or turn themselves off to it. And we'll even use this practice to hide around it.
1: Yeah. we'll say, this practice. I but... met you at the um, Accessible Yoga Conference and the Accessible yeah. Yoga Training in New York. And I did not expect to, I didn't expect a lot of things. And, and I, and I, you know, I, here I am the little white chick that wanders in, but I didn't expect to ask people what pronouns that they would like me to use when I talk about Mm -hmm. them. I was like, what are we doing here at an accessible yoga program? And I also did not expect to learn about white supremacy. And it was deeply uncomfortable in a way that I am now so grateful for, because, uh, you're right. You don't have to think about it unless, unless you're forced to, or unless if you're. It's my choice. I can flick through that right. and not think about it. And it to connect the idea of accessibility and yoga and the the connection with myself and others was was a really important lifting. I, and I and right. I'm completely grateful to you and your diagram. So I'd love you to talk about that because I think we can spiritually bypass and post butterfly bullshit, but once you wake up, you can't you can't unsee what you've seen.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I want to feel that way, and there's so many. It, it's like uh, I have this <laughs> I have this uh, saved reply email I have to folks who like want to get jiggy with me because it's something I said on y'all's podcast or something I said in the training or something they read I said or <laughs> whatever. Um, mm. And it basically is like, please use the internet for what it was designed for and go read. And mm. so I feel like we live in a time where people have the most access to the most information, multiple perspectives on a something. And people just don't want to learn. And even when they are presented with multiple examples of their privilege, of white supremacy, of racism, they're still like, but... And so... Mm. I don't know. I I, like I love when I talk to people who I have like built with and shared with and they say like, yeah, that made me really uncomfortable. And then I took it and I pivoted and I've been doing this or that or whatever. It really awakened me. But also, no, I equally have as many people who like I have to block on an email of like you did pay for a training with me and that training has concluded. And this is our sixth email and I am done trying to explain to you what I clearly laid out in slides and a nice diagram for you during your three and a half hour time with me. Like, you just don't want to accept this about yourself, but you're like the leading leading meditation teacher in your studio. It's like, how could I come into your class after another Black person is murdered and expect you to have enough cultural competence To make sure that you address that trauma for everybody in the class like this is the type of harm that I think that teachers don't think about um, of like everyone's coming to the practice for different things and everyone is coming to the practice for the same thing. We want to feel whole. Mm -hmm. We want to feel whole whether it's because we're in the posture or we're breathing or we get to the space of meditation that feels best. Like we want to feel whole. And that's why we keep coming back to the practice. But I can't feel whole if you microaggress me, question my existence, don't even mark it to me, talk down to me in the space and then ignore what might be happening out in the world that harms me. I can't be in your class. And I, you know, I wish that it wasn't the case, but a lot of the people that we really like hold as the important people in this practice are harm holders and gatekeepers around real equity. And, um, you know, they're silent right now. There, there's a lot of people who, you know, previously have made lots and lots of money on this practice and, They have audiences that are mixed in race. And because I do a lot of marketing and I'm a communications major for another yoga brand, I pay attention to see like who is saying what about what. And these are people that I know have been exposed to some variation of equity conversations. And here they sit silent on their meditation pillow in a yoga picture. You know what I'm saying? like that that part makes me not feel like it actually works, Maria that's the part where I'm like, well, I don't know like I said to Amber Carnes sometimes I feel like I'm wasting my time like what else could I have created in the world if I had decided to do a different job like be a collage artist instead of a race equity educator because it can feel like I'm just spinning my wheels mm.
1: well, I hope you don't I hope I I please keep going. and I and I, I mean I am. I am. For the sake of people you know because uh, that little bit of exposure made a big difference and and then it's my job to take that up and do that myself as you said if you can i don't know turn a napkin into a cat off the internet you could yeah you can read
2: i, I, would, it. I say something different every time i'm like if you can <laughs> learn how to make miniature donuts to feed to your baby twins cats you can figure out white supremacy like
1: exactly people
2: learn how to do amazing things on the internet learn how to unpack your privilege
1: But I think the work you're doing is important. And I think um, linking it to accessible yoga, because the idea of accessibility, that there's a big platform and there's a lot of people who will buy into that. And I don't, I mean, I'm all for it too. And, and I, but I did think it was more about disabilities and I, and I hadn't really gone, Oh, hang on different Mm -hmm. different bodies, different gender, different, different, all sorts of different identities, let alone BIPOC and the whole thing.
2: Right.
1: So, you are still hopeful because you're going to give that um, workshop on the online train. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm so
2: hopeful. I'm going to teach a class tomorrow. I'm teaching a class on the weekend. I have a training coming up with accessible yoga. I mean, the 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 thing that I always hold in my mind is actually a quote from Coretta Scott King. They never tell you quotes by her. She's actually really dynamic, also. But she said, "Every generation has a responsibility to liberty and like liberation." And so I keep doing the work because I have responsibility and I don't look at it like, Oh, it's this thing that I like carry around and like weighs me down. It's Mm. like one of the definitions of responsibility is an opportunity to make a choice or decision independently free of any like imposition or like control outside authority. And Mm. I feel like, I, you know, I chose to become a mother and I am grateful for the children that I have and will have. And I want to be able to say to them, like, I did these things. And so, like, can you carry this forward and like do more things? Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully it can be different. It would be a very futile existence, I think, to not have some hope about things shifting. I can, you know, I'm sure when it was announced that slavery ended, the ancestors I had that were here were probably like, oh, yeah, we on our way. And it's like, yeah, we're still on our way. But we there maybe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, this makes me this is normally when I start to get the unpopular emails. Uh, in a lot of ways the idea of integration was not for the benefit of people of color especially black people in America and it harmed and mm. created a lack of achievement that didn't actually ask white people to do anything they didn't have to give anything up white America actually like gained a lot by allowing black minds and thinkers and creatives into their spaces where they had been held out before and white people didn't really have to give up any, the power of whiteness for that to happen. Um, And it put a lot of teachers and makers and business owners out of business. And so um, I often think about like, what would have happened if integration hadn't been given and black people who were asking for more, like people like Malcolm X were asking for more than integration. He wasn't even asking for that. He was just asking for like equal ability to exist. I think about, like, what would have happened if people hadn't been, like, appeased with integration. Like, where would our lives be? Um, And not that I'm, like, saying they shouldn't have taken integration. I've benefited from that in different ways, but also been harmed by it in a ton of ways. And so I just, um, I don't even, I'm not even sure how I got onto that tangent, but... I'm going to keep doing the work because the people before me did the work that they felt like was important. And it's granted me, you know, the privilege to say I'm gonna work from home and it's going to cost a lot of money for you to bring me out of my house again. Um, <laughs> or, you know, like I'm going to school my children in the way that I'm going to school my children, like, or even that I'm going to have a place that's my home. Like I've benefited from the choices my ancestor made, my ancestors have made and I want to just Continue to be a part of that legacy and not drop the ball. Mm.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's important like, for us to look at this whole thing as a long game? Because I feel like mm-hmm. there are times like we talked about this before. I remember, you know, 10 years ago when I was hearing yoga babble, you know, which sounded like babble to me, but it was philosophy and all sorts of stuff. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And then 10 years down the line, Having studied and having had more experience in my life, I can see all of that for, you know, for the beauty that it actually is. And so there's all this stuff that's out in the space right now. People are talking that you're talking about all this amazing stuff, and there's so many people who have blind spots that cannot see it. Mm-hmm. But if we don't keep talking, they'll they might they might just be stay in their blind spots. Like it's that con- continual kind of pounding that helps right. people start to look around. Right. You know, I just wonder, you know, like, can we do this differently? You I know, mean, without that expectation? Ooh,
2: I, I mean, I years definitely years think now. it's a long game, which is why I spoke about the seven generations. I don't think yeah. that, like, Oh, by the time I'm old, I'll be like, remember back when white people used to do problematic things on the Internet and get us killed? I don't think that'll be the case. <laughs> um, I hope that is less. <laughs> um, I hope that police don't exist in the way that they exist now. Hmm. Probably gonna get an email about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the industry that harms people. but
1: Sure.
2: Um I definitely think that and I said this actually to a group of people I spoke to last week, last Wednesday Mm -hmm. was in yoga school that if each of us decides to choose to heal that, then perhaps in seven generations, it could be further healed. I also sit in a space of knowing that energetically evil is not sustainable and white supremacy is evil. And so while it has seems like it's lasted for a very long time in the grand scheme of the age of our universe, it's a very short time. We're a very young planet. And I only know that because my six-year-old likes to watch space shows. Uh, but we're a very young planet. And I remember even sitting watching something with him and it was talking about like when Earth formed and like what was here before Earth and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, time is an illusion. But also if we're going to be on this particular spectrum, yeah, we're very young world. And if evil has reigned for a brief time, it's not sustainable for people. I mean, we're seeing that in the pandemic. The life, the culture we had created, I don't care what country you live in, the culture we had created was not sustainable, which is proven by why we had to shut everything down just to like try to keep people well. My mm-hmm. country's not doing a great job of that, but you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying. It wasn't yeah. sustainable. And so it's like, For the people who don't want to shift, I'm like, well, it's kind of what my grandma used to say. You can get on the train or you can get out of the way because the trains are moving (laughs) in the direction of liberation. So I'm just like, let's chips fall where they may. We're just going to try to pull as many people that want to come on as they can. But if you want to stay stuck in this system of oppression, it's going to tear you up before it tears up like what is good and right about people. So hopefully people are in it for the long game, but also they're going to have to be, you know, people's eyes get big when I'm like, give up your money. If you're really serious yeah. about it, yeah. give up. You like to quote Buddhist monks, they give up their money, give up your monies. And I'm not saying like, go without what you need to survive, but also reconsider mm-hmm. what you need to survive based on what you're letting other people subsist in survival. Would that be equitable for you? And, you know, when we get into those types of conversations, people really have to, like, take a step back and, like, you're okay with children in cages. You're okay with it. You haven't really done anything to stop it, which means you're okay with it.
1: Mm.
2: And you'll have to question what part of yourself is okay with it. And are you okay with that? Mm. It's a deep rabbit hole. I think about it every time I look at my iPhone. I'm like, we're okay with children working in factories to make us electronics. We're okay with it. And so even I got to look at the part of myself that's okay with that. Would I be okay with that for my own children? I would not. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so that's That's what I mean. It's like,
2: are we ready to give it all up? Because all of it harms all of it. Like every, I was saying to some other people the week before, like most of what makes our life convenient and good and easy and enjoyable is based in oppressing another person.
1: Oh, part of it is a lack of imagination. It's just like, I just need to see what the options are. Cause I, I think I'd go with something if it wasn't such an amorphous choice. Right.
2: But mm-hmm. They can't do you, you guys familiar with Reverend angel Kyoto? Yeah. Yeah. I took a workshop from them like four years ago, maybe, maybe five. I can't remember. Probably four. Anyway, they, um, in the workshop, we were talking about race. It was real messy. Carrie Kelly was there too. And Holly Corey, it was like a lot. It was black and white people in the room. We were talking about race for four days and like what to do. And Michelle Cassandra Johnson was there. That's how I met her too. It was yeah, a lot of great, great people in that room. And on. one of the things, so for most of the workshop, I felt, felt pretty hopeless. I was just like, mm-hmm. these white ladies are not getting it. Every day they mm-hmm. come, they're more harmful than they were the day before. I don't know that, like, I was going to leave here feeling better about it and I feel worse. <laughs> and one of the things, Michelle Cassandra Johnson is one of the things that, like, brought me back to a place of hope. But one of the things that Reverend Angel said was that whatever the solution is doesn't yet exist because none of us has really existed outside of the system. So we can't even conceive of the boundless expanse of liberation because mm-hmm. none of us have really experienced it, even though it, white people would think that they benefit or it's presumed that they benefit. Like I said before, they're harmed in their own way. They carry that trauma in their own way. And so mm-hmm. all of us are being harmed by this system.
0: And mm-hmm. what happens
2: outside of it, it's like, we can't know. You're just going to have to agree to this unknown space or stay in this well-known harmful space. Yeah. But yeah, I'll go back the to thing, other country things. Better the devil we know than the devil we don't. Like that's what people. That's it. Not really the devil they don't know is actually like
0: the good thing. But anyway, yeah, you know, yeah, you, yeah, you know, this. Uh, oh, I, don't know, I was just saying this time has has a couple of things. Like one, it's it's heartened me because it feels like we're asking questions that we weren't asking before. I don't know how long we're going to be asking them, right. but we're certainly asking them. And then it also has brought me to this place of asking myself and everyone who will listen, um, you know, that we need to ask ourselves, how are we contributing to the problem? Like, how am I contributing to the problem is just, you know, is the question that people need to be asking themselves. And I, and I love that you're talking about this, not just in terms of, um, you, you know, not just in terms of racism, but in terms of things like capitalism and how that's impacting all of this. We're all playing a part in that. We're all playing a part in that. And I just, one question I have for you kind of on that is what, what do, what do you think black folks are supposed to do right now? Like, what is our role right now?
2: Rest. People are, people don't like my answer around that right now. Black people need to rest. We need to sleep. We need to play outside. We need to have a lot of good sex. We need to cook good, healthy foods. We need to do yoga. We need to be in community in the ways we can. We need to make art. We need to listen to music. We need to tell jokes. We need to watch funny movies. We need to just get more sleep, more rest, all of those things. That's how I feel. I think that the story too long, and I actually was just talking to my partner about this this morning, is that if we just work harder, if we just get more educated around money, if we just learn to budget better, if we just send our kids to better schools and get better jobs and join the military, like there's all these stories, go to church. Then finally they'll just like magically everything will be equitable. When, if we really take a law, look at the laws and I'm speaking specifically of the U S but let's talk about the world. Mm -hmm. If we look at laws, laws are in place to keep people down and oppressed. And so I'm going to go back to something else my grandfather used to say to me. If you are a black or brown person and your lineage has been through some sort of colonization, enslavement, plunder, wrath of white supremacy. So that's all the black and brown people in the world. Mm. If you've experienced this and you still exist in your body, your DNA is still here thriving and creating new lineages. You have done enough. You've done everything and you've survived a system that was not designed for you to survive. You should Mm -hmm. not exist. Mm -hmm. And here you are just as magical as you want to be. And so right now, while white America, white Australians, white Europeans, white people collectively realize like, oh, no, we've been being harmful just in our existence. We need to just step back and rest and let them figure out what they want to do to heal that for themselves. Because there's nothing wrong with Black people. We are experiencing a traumatic existence. And some people know how to deal with trauma in different ways than other people. But like, there's nothing wrong with Black people. We've been through an incredibly expansive and terrible experience. Just like people indigenous to the Americas, people indigenous to where you all live. Been through something traumatic. You should not exist. There should be nothing hopeful, joyful, or loving about you at all. And yet... Here we are still creating families, still making music, still making art, still leading culture in so many different ways. We need to just rest and observe. And if we choose to opt into educational experiences for white people or to be in relationship with them, great for you. We won't owe anybody anything. Nobody deserves our labor. Nobody deserves our intellectual labor, emotional labor. Just rest. So you can be ready and fortified for the revolution that is coming.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And who's leading it? Who's leading the revolution? Because honestly, like, as as a yogi, I hear you when I go, yes. Because that's what Michelle said, too. You know, she said, we need to rest. And so there's a part of me that's like, yeah, you need to rest. Like, you know that. And then there's another part of me that's like, but wait a minute. Like, who? The 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 (laughs) 8, almost 9 o'clock
2: answer I'll give you eight, nine for me answer I'll give you is that what if our rest is the revolution? Mm. What if us just existing is the revolution? And so we're leading it by doing it. We're leading it by saying, this is how we shall exist in this space. We shall have housing because we are human and we need housing. We shall have food because we are humans and we need food. We shall have water because we are humans and we need water. And we're not going to work hard for it. We're not going to break our backs for it. That's ludicrous. Whoever you believe in that made you made it so that you needed these things. Why shouldn't you have them? Why should you have to prove that you deserve that? That's why supremacy through and through and through and through. And so if we decide we're going to be done with it, it would have to be a collective, though. Oprah would have to give up all her resources. <laughs> But like, what if that is the revolution? Is that we get to just be and exist and enjoy the people that we love and be happy in our bodies and eat the food that grows naturally and not have mm-hmm. to deal with a whole bunch of illness and sickness that comes from all kinds of mess, but mainly stress and trauma. Like, maybe that is the revolution. Yeah,
1: but the prerequisite for rest is safety, isn't it? Like, yes. You rest if you're not safe, and I, I so I. I... I'm wanting to kind of, yeah, I'm wanting to, I mean, where you've got a safe place to rest.
2: You know, I was talk. I've been on a lot of zoom calls this week. So I was talking earlier with somebody about that notion of safety and how we were both parents, the other person I was talking to and we were talking about the perceived notion of safety that people have around their children. Like you all both share that you have children and, you know, there are things that we know are dangerous, you know, a stranger in the night, a weird poor, a weird person down the street who like has an infatuation. So like, we'll put up these particular boundaries around safety and safety for a white parent is very much different than a black parent. It always has been. And it shall continue to be until something dramatic occurs. Uh, But there hasn't been a time that not in the U S that a black mother could guarantee the safety of their child. Mm -hmm. They're not yours. It's always been established that they are the property of somebody else. And those other people will do what they want. However, we don't really like to admit that to ourselves that Mm -hmm. if, Oh, try as you might give your child the best education, teach them how to handle interaction with the police, how to be polite, all these other things. You cannot protect your children from the ways that white supremacy will cause harm. You can't protect yourself from it. And so, you know, I would like to say that I feel safe most of the time. And I don't feel safe all the time. I just, uh, yesterday, I was sitting outside with my children and someone was throwing poppets. Do y'all have poppets? They're like little bags of gunpowder. They're part of fireworks. They're in little like light tissue paper. So you can just throw them on the sidewalk. But it does sound like a gunshot. And so someone was driving up and down the street, throwing them out of a car window. And But I was sitting outside collaging. <laughs> my new, that's my new thing. I'm going to be a famous collager one day. I was sitting outside collaging and my kids were playing in the driveway. And that was coming towards us. And so I don't really scream at my children that often. So when I do, they know it's serious. That's why I tell people don't yell at your kids because then when you really do it, they really (laughs) know you mean business. But I started screaming, come this way, come this way, because they were out of my arm's reach. And for me to run out there to them and run back wouldn't have been. So I started to go towards them and they were running towards me as the person was driving. And my six-year-old, they got really frightened And so we sat for a little while and talked about like what it means to feel frightened and what to do when you feel frightened. But talking about it with you guys now and even like sharing it with my partner uh, this morning, you know, that perceived like I'm glad they were just throwing poppets, And Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I don't know what I would have done. You know what I mean? If if they hadn't been throwing poppets. but that perceived, you know, I'm sitting outside with no shoes my jean shorts weren't even buttoned (laughs) Collages, you know what I'm saying? I've already had my daily cocktail. I'm I'm not in my top, (laughs) I'm not in my top range of like quick reflexes and that perceived notion of feeling safe in my own yard could end in a moment. And I think that if more people appreciated that, that really is a part of the black experience of not, and I'm not speaking specifically around like gun violence in your neighborhood, but like, this notion of what feels safe to you, Maria might not feel safe to Char. Like you guys can meet for lunch and have two very different experiences around safety and visibility and accessibility and feeling seen. Um, but, you know, people, at this point, I think people don't want to think about it. We're too late stage in the game of the internet and people educating for free about white supremacy on the education, on the internet for people to say like, oh,
1: I have no idea. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm like you may not know how it shows up in every single space but you have an idea
1: mm. one of the I things was, that broke I think on Sean King's um on the Instagram was a video that this guy had of his kid playing basketball or something in his driveway and the um the child um a black kid and he and a police car drove by and he just hid behind the car and he saw his own son hide from I mean it makes me I'm going to cry. Guys. But to me it was really uh, nothing drives home that white privilege more because I haven't had to tell my kids. My kids don't wouldn't do that. They wouldn't. Right. They don't right. need to be afraid of the police. They don't. Right. Um, and that just, oh, just made me. It just broke my heart. It broke my kids' hearts too. They They that idea. That's a hard one. Right.
2: Yeah. I. Your story makes me think about um, the same workshop that I was at with Michelle Cassandra Johnson and all those other people and. We were breaking up into these like groups, these affinity groups. And um, one of the groups was mothers. And so at the time I had a almost three-year-old and a almost newborn um, baby. And so I went into the mother's group. Motherhood just felt like really prominent and present for me at that point. And went into the group and we were talking about like cultural differences. And however we got there, we got to the conversation of, me saying like my concerns and fears as a mother, while similar to yours, and I have all the same ones you have. I have these other lists of fears that you don't have and yeah. won't ever have to have. And, you know, it affects everything from the words I use when I speak to them, the way that the clothes that I dress them in, all the way to the toys that I buy and the shows that they can watch. And this mother was like arguing me, arguing me about like, no, you know, toys are toys and they make toys of all colors. just like, and what's funny is I actually have a really great working relationship with this person, but they were arguing with me about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing, and I shared with her, like your children probably play with police related toys, police cars. They watch shows with police on them. They, you know, police are their friends. Right. And she was like, yeah, I mean, they're here to help all children. No, my experience is that they put precedence on the lives of white children. Black children are not valued in the same way. And they're made into adults at a much younger age and treated that way. And I, it would be irresponsible of me to teach my sons that the police are their friends. Not saying that police officer people, the people who choose those jobs are necessarily bad people. And that is an industry that was created to maintain control of black and brown bodies. And that has not changed. That has not shifted, which is why it needs to be dismantled. And, you know, that person shared later, similarly to you, that it was something they hadn't had to think about before. But once Mm -hmm. I said it to them, they couldn't really look away from it because Mm -hmm. it would be irresponsible for me to tell my kids that. And my children have witnessed me having to advocate for ourselves and other people in our neighborhood because we live in a Black neighborhood. And it's a very different experience than what I grew up in. I grew up in a neighborhood where I was only, my parents were one of two black people who owned houses in their neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. the police very rarely came into our neighborhood unless they were called and, you know, whatever. (laughs) I barely saw them in our neighborhood to now I live in a predominantly black neighborhood and that's on purpose and intentional. Um, But the police sit inside of our neighborhood and Mm -hmm. They will use the crime statistics as a validation to do that. And Mm -hmm. I am a bicycle commuter. And it takes me exactly two minutes to bicycle from the entrance of my neighborhood to the parking lot of the police station. So in a car with sirens on, we're talking 30 or 40 seconds, really. It's not that far. It's across the street, really. And you're sitting here to remind us that you're watching us. And you are policing us. You're not here to protect us. You're not here to serve us. And, you know, that's come up in a bunch of different instances. And I had to explain that to my children. And I'm sure there are other people that don't have to tell a three-year-old or four-year-old what police brutality is or what white supremacy is and answer the very honest and naive questions that children have. You know, I've said to people, too, before, like, there's this notion of motherhood that it's our job to make sure that they have this joyful experience. They feel loved and they feel seen. Of course we know millions of people don't have that experience with the person that they consider to be their caregiver or their parent. But in general, I think most people who aren't suffering from some type of severe mental illness or sickness that causes them to harm children would agree. Yeah. Like their joy, their like outlook on life, their hope, saw their dreams are important to me. And Um, it's the same for me and I also know that in every single way I have to tell my children that the rest of the world doesn't see them like I do and they can be Mm. killed for that and that feels like a very cruel irony that you know I know all the things that they love and I know all the ways that they'll be dehumanized and I have to explain that to them and I've had to do it in small ways and big ways already with a six-year-old and a four-year-old and it felt horrible Mm. but you know, people don't think about it because it doesn't affect them. They don't have to have those conversations uh, with their children, never will have to have their those conversations with their children. And why should they have to worry about it? You know what I mean? <laughs> why should they have to worry about it?
0: Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry I, I to think... be so somber. <laughs> No, no, no. That's okay. This is all. This is this is it. This is the deal. You know, the, I think for people, just that, just like that story you just shared with us about how you know there was this kind of blind spot there for that woman. She needed to hear the story. She needed to hear it potentially from somebody who she could relate to on maybe another level, right? Um, to to really hear it. And so i I'm sitting here listening to this and thinking about all of the people that will hear this. And also thinking this just might be the time that their eyes hope, are opened.
2: I hope. Me too. I mean, I hope we get so to I, place I, where people don't even need a story. You know what I mean? Because even yeah. what you shared speaks to what white supremacy asked us to do. She couldn't see my experience as truth because she didn't really value me as a human. She'd been taught not to until she could see me in a similar way to her. And it's like, just mm. see me and trust that this is my experience and this is how you're responsible for But that's part of that insidiousness of, you know, always questioning um, any experience that doesn't affirm white supremacy. Like anytime that's presented, there's always like a question mark. Even when we're talking about the ways women are treated. Um, patriarchy is a part of white supremacy that says male identified bodies are more valuable, more sustainable, more you know, all the things more, um, mm. that's also a part of this big system of oppression. It's like one of the little children of white supremacy. And so it's like for women who feel so deeply connected to their feminine identity or protecting that, it's like, you must also protect black people then. Cause this is all the same fruit from same tree. You have to want to dismantle that also. And then your experience will get better Um, because everybody below you outside of that circle of pure white male, cis, heteroness, everybody Mm -hmm. outside will be freed up. So, so will you. And so I hope we just get to that point of people just wanting to be freed up and wanting to do whatever they have to do for other people to be freed up. And seeing how interconnected that is.
1: See, that's so cool. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: You talk about you talk about we had Michelle Cassandra Johnson on our podcast, which was uh, incredible. Okay. Exciting, brilliant. Just brilliant. Who else is out there? Who's inspiring you and in working with you and is inspiring as well? <laughs>
2: Dr. Gail Parker, uh, out of Detroit, but based in LA right now. Um her work is her work around race-based trauma and stress and the positive effects of restorative yoga really guide how we created our nonprofit, um, the sanctuary in the city. we I had actually went to a workshop with her only three weeks after I left the workshop where I met Michelle Cassandra and you know spaces can intend to do one thing and intention and impact can be different. And what I realized when I left that space is that, I felt really harmed, and I, you know, landed in this workshop with Dr. Gale, where she took us through, like, feeling our feelings around race, because that's something that Black people know how to do, too, is to, like, mm-hmm. put it in check, because we got to exist. And so she created this space where we didn't have to check it, where we could talk about it, and we were sitting knee-to-knee and crying and snotting on each other, and it was just our space to do that. We were at Kripalu. They probably were scared outside the room, honestly, but anyway... <laughs> We and then she took us through this really beautiful restorative practice and I came out of it feeling like brand new. So then it was like anything she said, I was like, well, Dr. Gale said, and um, and so still like she just had a book. Um, it's yeah. I think it's on ebook that just came out and the like hard cover the hard copies come in August. Um mm-hmm. so Dr. Gale for sure. Octavia Rahim, who uh, is based out of Atlanta, she owns Sacred Chill West, but they announced that they won't reopen after the pandemic. Um, I really admire the community that she created in her yoga studio space. Like the way I've taken trainings there and I've led a training with Jivana there. I was supposed to have another accessible yoga training there without him this year that we had to cancel. But I really admire the community she created there. And she just released a book too called Gather. That's really like, yeah, it, it, it gathered me up, but it, it's just like a lot of work around grounding and getting ready. Um, I've been reading it in the mornings when I, right before I do like morning pages. And then let me think who else, um, not a yoga person, but in body movement, Ilya Parker, um, he's a creator of decolonizing fitness. So he's a trans black masculine person. Um, we actually live in the same neighborhood coincidentally, but uh, he does a lot of work around making sure that fitness, um, in terms of like working out and training is positive for everybody and not just a particular aesthetic. Um, and I've worked with him like one-on-one in some training when the pandemic first started, that was really great and grounding, but I just like their way of teaching. They have a really great ebook on, um, creating spaces that are equitable for queer and gender non-conforming folks. Um. So definitely him, Decolonizing Fitness. Uh, I'm trying to think who else is amazing. There's so many amazing people. Well,
1: that was pretty um, cool.
2: Yeah. I mean, I love Jivina and Amber, too. I'm really grateful to them. They started this yoga school, this online yoga school that maybe Juvena talked to you guys about it. But um, their first course in the school is actually a course for me on race and equity in yes. yoga. Um, And so I feel super excited about it. It's a 12-hour course where we'll be talking about racism and white supremacy. And so like the workshop that you were present for, Maria, that was like 30 minutes of this 12-hour workshop um, where we'll be really taking a deep look at how we each are upholding systems of oppression and then cultivating some new patterns and ways. And for me, it's um, very interesting to think about Uh, like disrupting systems of oppression in the same way we would think about building like our practice of yoga and how, you know, the very first time you practice, if you can remember, I remember because my feet hurt so bad after I left just because I was a hairstylist. I stood all day. My teacher was making me do a lot of things around spreading my toes on the mat and like getting a good, and I was just having to stand in a way I hadn't stood and my feet like hurt so bad. And That happens to me whenever I come back to the practice, like the physical practice. I've had two children since I've been a yoga teacher. So, you know, Mm -hmm. practicing every day all the way to practicing not at all and having a baby and then coming back. Feet hurt again. And Mm -hmm. the more I lean into that discomfort and really create a sustainable way to stand, that dissipates. And standing Mm -hmm. incorrectly starts to hurt my feet. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's the same as like... Mm -hmm. White supremacy asks all of us to be out of alignment, to be unwhole, and the act of making yourself whole, of getting into alignment around humanity, yours and other people's, is going to be very uncomfortable for all of us. And the more that we lean into it, the more the systems of oppression become uncomfortable to us. And so we get to this pivotal point, which maybe we're there, but I don't quite think we're there just yet. But we'll get to this very pivotal point moment when it's like you have to lean into what's most comfortable and that's going to be leaning away from systems of oppression but only if we stay through that initial like pain and discomfort of letting go of capitalism and letting go of systems that you know make sure that people are being paid a fraction for things that we pay thousands of dollars for like we have to lean into that discomfort um, and release a attachment, like the practice access around what the outcome is going to be, just knowing that it has to be better because it's sustainable and it's in alignment and not this crazy mixed up
0: version of life that we've been living for a few thousand years. <laughs> mm. Man, that just, yeah. Well, we are, we're committed to continuing to keeping this conversation going Mm-hmm. And keeping, you know, just continuing to ring the bell through the election, through the whatever, you know, as long as we can. Are y'all because, in the
2: election season too?
0: No. Oh well, I'm we, I'm American, so I'm oh, voting oh, yeah. from oh, Australia. Yeah, oh, I didn't know.
2: Yeah, and
0: Maria was Maria was brought up in 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 New York, so um, I, I, I'm Australian. I, I never had an American passport. Something on am oh, oh, okay. I mean, right now, yeah. So. so you know, <laughs> we just, we're really committed to keeping this conversation going. And so, um, and so we just kind of want to thank you for, for showing up here tonight in the way that you have,
1: thank you. um,
0: and for inspire. And so I can talk, I'm sure I can talk for Maria and, and by saying, and, and just inspiring us to stay the course, basically just yeah. to, you know, know it's not going to, it's not going to feel good all the time, yeah. but that's no reason to look away because, yeah. uh, that's what we're here to do. And and particularly for me, just to just to have inspired me to just rest.
2: Yeah, just rest. I you know, I coach folks, like I I do mindful coaching. I don't call it business coaching because people think I'm going to teach them how to make a lot of money and I'm like I can't teach you how to do that because I'm trying to unpack capitalism. I mean, I know how to do it, but we're supposed to be leaning away from that. So, anyway, I coach a lot of people and most of my people work for themselves, but mm-hmm. almost all of my coaching clients are only on 3-day work weeks. Some people are on 4 because I'm a big proponent of like white, black, whatever, we've been taught Mm -hmm. that our worth is directly tied to what we contribute to the machine. And it's not true. You're valuable just as you are. Both of you are valuable just as you are. And so if we don't make another thing to produce, it's fine. You deserve to exist just as you are. We just also have to unpack the system that says no. You have to earn rest. You have to I tell all my clients, I'm like, rest first. Like they're all on a calendar and, you know, I encourage them to like really use their calendar the way they want to. But I'm like, get you some colors. Your favorite color needs to be your time. Your least favorite color needs to be making money. Mm -hmm. And put the things that you enjoy first. Schedule your naps, your lunch breaks. You know, before I think people had less space because we, you know, we get in that car and we go, go, go. But now even still, I'm like, are you sleeping in sometimes? Do you have like breaks during the day? Do you go for walks? But I'm like, rest first. And then with all the energy you cultivate, if you feel like it, do some work. And that's like the way that I've been operating, which feels scary because it's like, you know, I have a whole mess of emails. Yeah. I'm gonna get to them tomorrow. Today I had to (laughs) catch up on something I didn't finish on Friday, (laughs) on Thursday night really. But, you know, it's the space of like, the whole single world can wait, but we bought the lie that they can't. Mm-hmm. So I just encourage everybody, but especially black people. It's like this notion of us being lazy. Are you serious? Look at the wealth of these nations. It is built on our backs. We are not lazy. We are the hardest working people. Just
0: rest.
2: Just sleep. Just sleep in. Just make love. Make a good meal. Be outside. And then later, if you have time, squeeze in some capitalism, but don't make it the center focus. And that's hard for me. I'm a Capricorn. I like to work. Mm. (laughs) It's, you know, it's like it's anti me to say that. And also, I feel real free in it. Well, it
1: must give you tremendous energy to be so incredibly productive on the two or three days you are working. because (laughs) I'm
2: not going to lie to you. Today was not a productive day. I had a tree get cut down outside and I sat outside with my children until lunchtime from like 7 in the morning to like lunchtime watching this process of the tree coming down when I should have should have been answering emails and then was packed with calls all the way to now. So tomorrow's another day and maybe the people I owe a response to can get one. Probably, probably they will. But you know what I mean? It's I'm moving to the yeah. space of whatever it is. Maybe it's urgent and maybe it's not.
0: Yeah.
2: Maybe white supremacy is making me feel urgent.
1: Mm-hmm. right yeah. so just rest
2: yeah. Rest as much as you try to work
1: well we should let you rest yeah and we should thank, thank, you. thank,
2: you. thank you so you oh
0: my for, for, yeah do you know when thanks
2: for coming out or will you just send me an email
0: we'll send you an email it should probably be in a, about three weeks or so okay thank yeah you. about three so we'll send you a message again. Thanks for answering our call, yeah. for taking time with us, and more importantly, for all the work you're doing in the world. My 16 year old daughter is sitting here; she's been listening. Oh, um, yeah! I know she's learned stuff. I can't wait to get up and like. That's we'll so just have a
2: cool that a- she gets a- to live in Australia for a little while.
0: Yeah, or yeah.
2: permanently? I don't know,
0: but <laughs> oh, she'll probably she'll probably I don't know she'll probably travel around. She's half American, half Australian. So, oh,
2: okay. All right. So, so yeah. yeah.
0: But yeah, just thank you for the person you are for people like me and for her too, you
2: know. No, thank you all both. Thank you Maria for reaching out to me. I enjoyed meeting you at the Accessible Yoga Conference. There were a lot of not so
1: enjoyable people I was so- like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't one of those pains in the no. neck. No. But it,
2: was, it, was, it just, was I'm always surprised when we're in like a space for advocacy and people only want to advocate for certain things and like push back around you know, like when I say to people like you advocate for the blind, you know, there are black blind people. Right. And they're having a different experience than white blind people. Right. And those black people in wheelchairs, black people do get amputations also. And they they could use your services, but you're so culturally incompetent. They don't feel safe to come into your space like that part blows my mind. But it was great to meet you. And I was feeling excited. I was trying to come to Australia with Juvenile in November. but
1: I know we were I was excited, too. I would have been yeah. down in Sydney. And I might email you and um, ask you for a photo or something like that. So, okay,
2: yeah. I'll send you one. Super and then hopefully America can get it together and people from America can come to other places in the world.
0: Yeah, at some point.
2: I'm like, we can't even escape. If things go bad in November, nobody will take us. Nobody might take us. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be a new Underground Railroad. Anyway, good night to- <laughs>
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Take care. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. All righty. How y'all doing out there? That was definitely one of my favorites. It's such a beautiful mix of emotions and opportunities for deep reflections. So much heart and soul. Kelly, thank you for all you are doing in the world and for taking the time to be with us in such a real way. We mentioned her race and equity and yoga course. Well, enrollments have now closed, but you can definitely get on the waiting list for the next intake. And when you do, you're going to get some fabulous resources from Kelly. So jump on over there and get on that list. I am. And speaking of courses, our very own Maria has opened up the next round of her online yoga for mental health training course for yoga teachers and students. Her course is going to be running from October 14th through November 11th, all online with Maria and spaces are going to be limited. So now is the time to book your spot. I have done this training with Maria and I can tell you, I found it to be an incredible resource. The information that I learned in that course, I come back to again and again, so I can highly recommend it. And if you're wondering what's coming up next, I can tell you that we've definitely got more beautiful conversations coming in the weeks ahead. So why not subscribe so that you can be notified as soon as our next episode drops. We're really trying to get these episodes out regularly, but sometimes it's a little bit challenging. Um, But I know what we've got coming up next you will not want to miss. And before I let you go, I just want to say thank you for listening and for being a part of this widening family of life and yoga lovers. We appreciate you and we're so comforted to know that you are out there listening. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Namaste.